Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Representing almost a fifth of the economy, tens of millions of people work in healthcare in the United States. And most of those people spend most of their time in one part of the vast healthcare system, working for hospitals or insurance companies or pharmaceutical companies, to pick just a few examples. I've always had a particular interest in people who've touched the healthcare system from different vantage points. I want to know what extra knowledge they gain from having different perspectives. I want to know how they built their career paths, since typical career trajectories tend to keep people in a single lane. And today I am speaking with one such person. That's Andy Slavitt. Andy is general partner at Town Hall Ventures and host of the podcast In the Bubble. His career has taken him into many parts of the healthcare system. He began in consulting, developed some of his own companies, worked for a large insurer, and in 2014 joined the Obama administration, was acting administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. More recently, he's advised on COVID response under President Biden. And last year, he published the book Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics, and selfishness doomed the U.S. coronavirus response. Now, I could spend the rest of the episode reading his bio, but what I really want to do is bring it into our conversation. What we'll do today is talk about how these pieces fit together and the special insights Andy has as a result of the variety of vantage points he has. That's what we'll do in today's Health Podacy excursion. Andy, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, Alan. Well, it's really a pleasure to be able to spend some time with you. And as I noted in the introduction, I, I really want to focus on this unique vantage point you have. And we could ask it from a lot of different uh, perspectives, but let me start with this one. So you began in consulting and on the private side, and then you came into public service at a very senior level. Uh, how did the experience and your training, you have an MBA, uh, it influence your approach to public service? What I realize is how quickly we all become a prisoner of the chair we're sitting in, Alan. I mean, you know, you, you are one of the few people in healthcare that has the, the broad vantage point to be able to look at different systems issues from an unbiased perspective. But this, as soon as you take a job, uh, you know, in, in a diagnostic company or um, you know, running a cath lab or selling an electronic medical record or running a, a Medicaid or exchange plan for a state, the whole world instantly starts uh, to look uh, of healthcare. You start to see the, the world through that very specific lens. And you know, running CMS is a similar um, job because in many respects, your responsibility is to 130 million Americans, most of whom live on a fixed income or a low income, to make sure that they get their healthcare needs met, and to the people that are paying into the system that, that someday hope to be on Medicare or will need the Medicaid program. And so, you know, any particular pecuniary interest that someone might have, say, in a, in a hospital reimbursement or um, how they feel about um, you know, prescription drug costs or any of these other issues. You know, you, you, you really have a, a unique and elevated lens. Uh, for me, uh, it was empowering and exciting to instantly adopt that lens. But what coming from the private sector allowed me to do, to be, to be just very plain about it, is have a, have a much better BS meter. Uh, when people would come in to talk to CMS and say, hey, 
but you really need to reimburse dialysis centers more. And no, we're not going to agree to provide better outcomes in exchange. And um, and and you really, um, I, I find people who come from the private sector into the public sector, and I'm not the only one, get this awakening um, where they realize how much time people spend in healthcare chasing things that are in their own interests but aren't necessarily in everybody's broad interests. You know, I remember in policy school learning where you stand is where you sit, right? Your positions depend on which chair you're in, and that's a great example of it. I'm also reminded that I used to go to a lot of trade association meetings, and I'd be kind of the policy guy, and I'd want to give this big, far-reaching speech about what's going on in the world and the trends and the shifts. And the room, you know, people were interested, but the room filled up when the government relations person was speaking to talk about reimbursement levels. That was sort of business number one. Uh, When you have that BS filter on, I guess two questions. One is, there is some reality. So how do you separate the BS from the rest? And the other is, did you look back on some of your private sector experience and think, oh boy, I wish I'd thought of that differently now that I have a broader vantage point? Well, if every day you're not adjusting your vantage point, then you're not learning and living, uh, and and you're not honestly self-assessing. Uh, so, of course, that has to be you know, p- part of uh, everything. Look, all I required were a few simple things. If if somebody was going to make a policy recommendation to me on the staff at CMS, I wanted to make sure they weren't just listening to the loud and moneyed voices. So if someone was going to make a policy decision, say, on, on how to reimburse for some you know, great new thing or, or some, some um, medical practice, I wanted to make sure that people were not just hearing from the lobbyists and the people in power and even the people that could write their congressperson or senators, but that they took a 360 view. Have you talked to patients? Have you talked to advocates? Have you talked to everybody affected by, affected by this? And what you quickly learn is there is everybody is both right and wrong at the same time. So people who say, you know what, I can't make this hospital work unless I get paid more. Um, you know, they, of course, are dealing with real constraints. Um, but there's also another vantage point which says, you know, it, that if you, if you don't have cost pressure, then, then they won't get more efficient. And there's no single truth. Um, but, but, but the best answers can usually be found in listening to all sides of the issue and understanding it, debating it. And my job was really not so much to make the best decision as much as it was to protect people um, so that they could make the right decision. In other words, gosh, Andy, this is going to be awfully unpopular, but if this is the right thing to do. Uh, those are the points of time when, as, as a leader, you, you, you really want to say to people, tell me what you think the right thing to do is. Let's understand the realities. Let's understand the political realities. Let's understand the drawbacks. No decision can be made without some drawbacks. And then I will protect our ability to do the right thing. So long as you're telling me that it's in the best interest of the 130 million Americans who depend on these programs, the people that will come after them, and then the system that's influenced by it. Well, I, I want to take that uh, vantage point. And now you've left government. And one of the things you've focused on a lot is the power of entrepreneurship in solving problems, uh, particularly problems 
in the healthcare sector where the cost of those problems falls to the taxpayer. So you have those 130 million people in mind before you still have them in mind. Um, but as I understand it, you now are looking at you know, sort of what what can the private sector do? Is that a, first of all, am I capturing how you think about this uh, appropriately? Well, I was spoiled at CMS and then I got to think about big problems and I was energized by trying to solve big problems. And I, what I didn't want to do is leave CMS and find myself with only one tool because I knew I would quickly fall into that trap of seeing the world that all of healthcare is going to be solved through that one tool. You know, if, you, if you're a policy person, you believe that there might be a single policy stroke that's going to solve everything. If you're, you know, if you're someone who's on the business side, you might believe that, that there's something there that's going to do it. I knew enough to know that um, any one solution isn't going to be enough. And what I asked myself were two questions. One is, what do I want to be different in 10 years? In other words, 10 years from when I left CMS, what do I want to be different? And what could I be doing right now to, to make a difference? And the answer to that for me was I wanted to work on getting better quality health care to the people in this country that don't get access to good quality care and have it in their communities for generations. Because to me, that was the biggest leapfrog we could make as a system. And the second thing um, that, that I asked myself are, um, what are all of the tools at our disposal that could be that could work together? And uh, to me, there are, there are two, and they're both important in different ways and in concert. One is policy. Uh, everything that changes uh, comes at some point from some policy change, either from CMS or at the state level. And I wanted us to get those right, and I got involved in co-starting an organization that focused on policy. And, and the second is innovation, because my my perspective is things won't change um, based on all my experience in healthcare. If Mass General creates a great new way of doing surgery where 30% more people live and they have a higher quality of life, then 10 years from now, that Mass General will have done, will, they'll be doing that at Mass General and maybe there'll be one or two other places. Um, but innovation does not spread around healthcare well and easily. And what I saw at CMS was, as I had the privilege of touring around the country, almost every problem was being solved somewhere. You could take the problem of kids with dyslexia in the foster care system, and there was somebody somewhere that had figured out a, the best possible way to get the best possible outcomes. The problem was they were probably doing it with a $250,000 non-renewable grant on a shoestring, with no technology, no talent, and no ability to spread it. And so good things tend to happen once and then die off. Maybe they get written about somewhere. And the, what I wanted to do is say, how do we marry the ability to take a really good thing that's happening and, and actually have a vehicle to spread it around the country with some success, with good policy, and with those dual shock and awe tools, I figured I'd have the greatest chance to look back in 10 years and say, you know, we actually changed some things. And I just w wasn't willing to only pick one route to get to these goals. Because if you care about those goals, the route doesn't matter. And so if you told me that, that you, could, you could reduce maternal mortality in the black community and you could do it through 
a whole combination of tools, innovation, uh, public advocacy, better regulations, better policy, and, and use all of them, I'd say, okay, now we have a chance. If you told me, Andy, you have to pick one tool, you can make a policy change and then watch what happens. I would just be far more pessimistic. I'm sitting here trying to figure out whether policy is shock and innovation is awe, or policy is awe and innovation is shock. And I'm not sure it matters, but that's uh, that's what's running through my head right now. Um, I suppose most people think of policy as shock. Uh, I think and- policy is shock. Yeah, I think <laughs> policy is shock. Yeah. So I like this idea of the two tools. Let's uh, stay for a minute on the innovation side. Uh, I hear from so many people, the and we know we actually have a lot of evidence that innovation doesn't spread very effectively in healthcare. Now, I had the pleasure of running... A, state Medicaid agency uh, three decades ago. And at the time, the approach we thought to bringing the innovation into the system was managed care. We said, well, you know, we don't really know how to organize care. We're a fee-for-service payer at the state level. But there are these organizations that really put their energy into trying to figure out how to organize and deliver care. They can overcome all kinds of barriers. They can make investments that we can't. Um, and of course, now almost everyone in Medicaid is in some sort of managed care program. And on the Medicare side, Medicare Advantage is, you know, right around half the enrollees. I'm interested in the relationship between the policy decision of who to uh, commission to do this work and the innovation side. Uh, and I guess I'm also interested in I hear from people who work in managed care systems and in state Medicaid agencies that they get phone calls every day from the company that says we can do the best job on treating children in the foster care system with dyslexia, to pick your example. But they're so overwhelmed by the number of innovators and so underwhelmed by the evidence to support them that they don't know what to do. So how do we the, 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 the model is compelling. The, the combination of policy and innovation is compelling. But just the scale of the system is so large. How do we find where to make the right choices? Well, you know, if, if what you say is true, even that is a little bit more promising than the case used to be. If there are, in fact, people who are trying to innovate in areas that really matter. Because for a long time, I worried that that, that wasn't the case. And, and I hope that is changing. So look, the work I do at Town Hall Ventures, which is the fund I started to invest in underserved communities, is the least public part of the work that I do. It's something I've, in interviews like this, it's the one thing that I never get asked about and almost never talk about. So I'm, I'm pleased to, to to do it here, and I'm pleased that, that you that you asked. Um, and maybe I could could give you an example of of one company that we that we started, uh, and it's called Eleanor Health. Named named for Eleanor Roosevelt, the uh, the the mastermind is a is a is a woman named Inzika Harrison, who is a psychiatrist psychiatrist and addiction specialist, uh, and Corbin Petro, who is um, a fabulous uh, uh, woman who runs who runs the organization. In fact, many of our companies we find and invest in are people who are have a lived experience in an underserved community and see the solution so vividly, but. They want the resources, the technology, the staff to, to give it a shot to see if they can make it scalable. And the vision at, at Eleanor Health for Eleanor Health was 
we all talk about how addiction is actually a chronic condition, yet we continue to treat it like an acute condition, and we continue to pay for it like an acute condition. And if uh, you, I was talking to somebody the other day who has started a recovery center, and they make lots of money when people, um, uh, through the course of their recovery, relapse and come back. And um, what what Eleanor Health decided to do was to say, to treat this like a chronic condition, let's 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 only get paid like a lo- a long term payment for value for the value of we provide and the outcomes we provide. Let's use that to invest in job training, this job readiness, anxiety and depression, which they test daily, um, all of the wraparound services, and um, let us have this long-term relationship where we focus on harm reduction, which I think many people would agree is a very prominent role, an underused role to play in addiction treatment, and then let us measure the heck out of everything we do in a way that, you know, the, that's, so we're really talking about a scheme. You take the best of what innovative people do and the best of policy, policy and clinical people do and put it together. And, you know, today, uh, you know, in their first clinic, um, they showed really dramatic and significant results. They take anybody that comes in, including particularly Medicaid patients. Today, they have 30 clinics. And what's astounding is that in the results in all 30 clinics are on top of one another in terms of all the things they measure, um, reduction in anxiety, job readiness, housing, uh, and, and, and so many things. Um, and, you know, the, the question is, can you take a compelling idea and really bring it to scale? And then you've got all kinds of other questions because the challenges don't end there. Then the question is, well, how do you make it work in the ecosystem, in the ecosystem of managed care and state Medicaid plans and uh, all the other uh, things on the horizon? And the answer is, those are difficult jobs. but. I'd rather have somebody purpose-built to try to go out and figure out what those barriers are and try to solve them and scale them than somebody who's trying to do 10 other things, manage under a full kind of capitation, um, or have... Uh, so So I guess I'd say, Alan, is when I, if you find someone with a really compelling vision who says, you know, I know how to take care of people in low-income housing so that they don't need to go to the ER so often so that doctors come to them so that um, they have many more of their needs met so that they live longer. Uh, I'd rather, I, I, I would get behind that kind of conversation and say, how do we figure out whether you're right? How do we figure out where you're wrong? And how do we figure out how to make this happen? And today, Town Hall has 25 investments. Not all of them are going to be like Eleanor Health. Not all of them are going to be like City Block Health. Uh, but there's going to be some amazing things that emerge. Uh, PACE programs, um, maternal mortality uh, and maternal health. Uh, we started a company called Quilted Health. That when we started, um, we were told routinely that Medicaid moms, and, I, and I'm quoting exactly here, Alan, Medicaid moms don't care about the health, their own health and the health of their babies. Well, it turns out that's not true. It turns out that they just don't have access to good OB care. They don't have access to maternal health, but they take great care of themselves, just like every other mom wants to do. And so we've had, um, we've had an incredible record. No, no ER visits for any of the moms at this program. Um, 
no C-sections, no preterm labor, um, really remarkable results in low-income communities where, where this has started. The problems are so solvable at the beginning, Alan, because just nobody trying, nobody trying to serve these populations. So, so trying to get focused on those areas and trying to make things happen there. We invested in a company that focuses on Medicaid kids that are chronically ill, that are born with, with medical disabilities, that um, where the result of their birth has been a near 100% divorce rate among their parents. Um, and these are low-income folks who are trying to deal with something that is traumatic, crushing, and expensive. And we found a, we found a little group in Florida that does something incredibly uplifting uh, and supportive. And it works and it's magical and it keeps these families together and working. Why wouldn't you look at something like that and say, how do we find both policy support and ways to, to, to give them resources to expand those? And that's, that's the fun part of what we try to do. Well, those are really uh, exciting and interesting examples. And uh, I'm so glad you shared them with me. I want to ask a few more questions about how we make the good parts of this work and uh, set aside the not so good parts. Uh, we'll do that after we take a real short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Andy Slavitt, general partner at Town Hall Ventures, host of the podcast In the Bubble. Before the break, we were talking about some innovative programs that uh, Town Hall Ventures has invested in. And you noted that most people don't ask you about this part of what you do, which I think is interesting in and of itself. I want to ask a question that has challenged me for, I'm not kidding when I say decades, ever since, as I said, I was running the Medicaid agency in Colorado. And it is this tension between sort of private funding and private investment and private return on investment and uh, public programs and being uh, responsible to the public uh, fisc and the public treasury. So we know that there's a longstanding problem in Medicaid of low payment rates that can create access barriers for providers, then along comes this really innovative program. And let's say it's a private enterprise, a commercial enterprise, and they're going to achieve some great outcomes, but they're also going to make some money doing it. And that money, we're already hearing there isn't enough to go around. There isn't enough for the providers who are just trying to do the basics to take care of their patients. How do you think about the the balance? It really is a balance, but how do you think about the balance between earning money off of uh, innovations that clearly have benefit, uh, but also making sure that we're not taking advantage of the taxpayer or taking money that's needed by other uh, services that that folks uh, require to be healthy? So people swarm around the healthcare system like buzzards looking for ways to make money. Um, the industries around the actual taking care of patients that are two and three and four layers removed that are worth billions and billions of dollars 
uh, are re- really, really problematic. And so it's an incredibly important question that you and all of us have to keep asking and putting everybody under that microscope. Um, and by the way, even with the best of intentions, I think it's important that we all reflect uh, on those things because there is this entitlement that people have, and and it's always easy to justify. So having said that, I'll tell you how I started thinking about this at, at, at CMS, which is um, we would talk about something like, how do we adjust the star ratings? Or how do we um, create an incentive for more or better mental health? Or, or different things like that. And inevitably, someone would say, hey, there's going to be unintended consequences. Someone's going to figure out how to take advantage of this and do what people do in healthcare, which I think of as sort of teaching to the test. You basically say, here's a way to earn a bonus by providing better quality, and people figure out how to routinize it without actually solving the problem. And it's, it's this kind of thing policymakers battle against all day long, all the time. What I said, what I decided was, I think what we have to decide is not whether or not we're going to wait to make the system perfect before we create incentives. But I think what we have to do is we have to decide who we are comfortable making those incentives. In other words, if you could say to a physician who treats Medicaid patients, we will give you more money every month as being part of a medical home or, so, or something else by, taking, by, by willing to take on more hard-to-treat patients, by willing to take on people with four or five chronic conditions, for people who have mental, social, behavioral issues, for people who are unhoused. Let's, let's let those people get rich. Let's let people who are willing to say, you know what, it's going to cost me three times as much to care for that patient as somebody else. And a lot of effort and psychology and social norms, and I'm going to have to have people sit in my waiting room that may scare other patients and a bunch of other reasons why I just decide I can't take care of the most hard to treat patients. So fine, get how, how much of that has to be intrinsic and unrewarding. But I would rather people who are running in the direction of taking on our biggest challenges and did it successfully were the ones that did well financially because somebody's always going to do well or better. So we have to look for excesses. We can't get it perfectly right. Um, we have to make adjustments. And as you'll see, I think, as everyone gets their star ratings pushed up, you've got to raise the bar and make performance even better and better and better. But, Alan, what's interesting is, you know, before, called 15 years ago, people had no reason to talk about quality in a boardroom. Sure, there'd be some medical director inside a managed care plan who would, who would care about their HEDA score. But today, like CEOs of healthcare organizations want to understand the components of what creates a better STAR score. So at, at that level, there's some level of victory because even if those things aren't perfect, the fact is, people can't say, we just got to cut, 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 cut in order to be profitable. People have to say, we have to have good star scores, which means we're really taking care of people, getting the better outcomes, getting their prescriptions on time. And I can't tell you how many times a CEO would call me and say, 
hey, I got dinged on my star score because 50 people got the wrong prescription. That seems unfair. And I'd say, well, look, the fact that you know that 50 people got the wrong description is is progress. Um, and we can argue whether or not 50 is high or low, but I would tell you that what you're being told is you got to reduce that. It's not acceptable. People can't go in to the pharmacy and get handed the wrong prescription. And they would put teams of people on it to solve these problems for people. So, look, these incentives create excesses. I think there's too many, too much of healthcare is wired around things that have nothing to do with patient care. And there's too many ways to make money in healthcare that are just unproductive. But this idea that we can form policy that can make patient care a higher and higher part of what people think about every day is really, really important. Uh, because it just wasn't happening before. It's still not happening enough, but it creates some hooks for future success. Well, now, part of what I'm hearing is that the closer your investments are to actual delivery of care, the better you can feel about them. It's one thing to invest in a company that figures out to, how to change coding to get a higher risk uh a reward, a risk, risk payment. It's another thing to invest in someone who's trying something novel with respect to a population that historically has not gotten much attention. And and uh, we need to learn what works. And those are two really different ways of making money. That's part of what I heard. That's 100% the case. The other thing I heard was, and I've, I've thought and talked to people about this, that sort of directionally correct policy is important, even if it's not precisely uh, correct or can't be precisely calibrated, that you're sending a signal. I want to push back on that concept because I I tend to agree with it. I want to push back on it with uh, two things that I've heard. One is when, let's focus on the hospital readmission penalty, that would fit, I think, your model of something where you want to send a signal, look, you've got too many people going back to the hospital. So one thing I heard from someone in a position to know was that a lot of hospitals sort of looked at whether they were likely to get penalized or likely to get rewarded. And they basically figured if they if they weren't close to the dividing line, they didn't really have to do anything different. They either were going to just have to suck up the penalty or they could ride this out uh, because they were already in good shape. And then, of course, in health affairs, we published quite a few papers showing that the net effect of the readmission penalty was actually uh, counter to equity goals in the sense that it was taking resources out of hospitals that were serving harder uh, to serve populations, populations with social disadvantage uh, that were had nothing to do with uh, the hospital's care. So here's a situation where you'd say, okay, we're trying to do the right thing, but some of the consequences could have actually been pretty negative. How do we avoid that? Well, look, directionally correct policy in and of itself isn't the answer. But the answer is directionally correct policy that rapidly learns and, and innovates and improves. Because you're going to learn a whole bunch of things, some positive, some negative, when you implement something new. Um, and so the answer is to continue to adjust until you make it better and better. You're, you're, you fine tune it. Um, so one to take some of the examples that you gave, when I was at CMS and I would go visit a hospital, 
system or care delivery system, somebody people were fond of telling me how they were really achieving the triple aim. I, you know, I came a couple years after Berwick and, you know, that was, so people were rattling, um, you know, the triple aim. And I said, that's great. Uh, well, here's what I want to know. Tell me the difference in care between the top quartile of people who come to your system and the bottom quartile or the bottom decile and the top decile. How big is that gap? Are you measuring it? Or are you closing it? Because if you're moving the average up, but you're getting there by taking the easy stuff and by, you could actually be increasing disparities. And as we know, life expectancy gaps have only increased. And so you have to focus on what you care about. And when I was running CMS, uh, you know, people take their signal from what I asked about. And that was the question I would always ask. And it was strong signaling. And people would learn over time, don't, if Slavitt's coming to your hospital, you better know what's happening, not just on average, but you better know what's happening at the ends of this when people are having the most difficult experience. So I would argue that if you're making rapid adjustments to things like you know, readmissions rates, or, 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 and I don't want to overly focus on that one, but, but almost anything, that you have to ask the question, not how's it doing on average, but how's it doing across the quintiles, if you will, of your system? And if you're doing well at the top and poorly at the bottom, I would argue that that's not succeeding. And so maybe you implement a change and an improvement. And look, you have to, what you have to watch for is too much complexity. You know, even as I say this, we'll tell you that um, that the complexity uh, at some level is necessary and at some level is unhelpful um, to, to, to strong signaling. But if you're doing it in a way that's simple and clean and clear and says uh, that we're going to reward you if you take on more challenging populations and we're going to hold you to the same high standards of care um, for those folks, we're going to give you the money to invest. We'll give you a little more money to invest in those populations, but we expect you to get equivalent results and close those gaps. And they do that consistently. That can't be the Slavit flavor of the month and then Seema Verma comes in and she's got a different flavor. You know, that doesn't work as well. But if you've got a consistent thread uh, over time and say, these are the things we want to make progress against, then I think you can make some progress. They're, they're very hard things. They require pulling together. I'll tell you, when I was in the Biden White House, we had real-time feedback on health equity goals based upon who was getting vaccinated and who wasn't. And at the very beginning, as you know, Ellen, there was a 10 to 20 point gap between white Americans getting vaccinated and black and Hispanic populations getting vaccinated. We closed the gap. Um, as, as you know, it took some time, but we closed the gap. And the reason we closed the gap is because we worked on it. We worked on it as a thing. We worked on it aggressively. We worked on all the things you need to do to do it. And it took many, 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 many things. And it happened, but it happened because of the focus. And what I, the lesson from that is if you care about something, you have to invest in it. If it's worth doing, it's worth the hard work. And as we know from what happened with Medicaid expansion, many of the equity gaps started to be reduced over the first five years. Everything from cancer to cardiology to maternal health to infant health, to home ownership, payday lending. All these things happen. Five years of investment in a way of caring for people who were 
Nirpur, and it made a difference. Probably the biggest policy success of the last several decades in healthcare. Uh, it's uh, striking because people always talk about, well, we don't know how to solve problems. And actually, there are a lot of problems we do know how to solve. We just choose not to. And sometimes we choose to. We need to probably do a better job uh, showing the progress we've made when when we do it. Um, you know, you mentioned the ingredients also being to modify the policy as as you learn. And I think that is one of the challenges. I'd be curious on your your personal experience with this. I'm sorry to keep focusing on readmissions because I, I don't think it's the most important policy. It's just such an easy exemplar. Uh, how long it took between when the evidence started to emerge that this had negative equity implications and for there to actually be some movement so that uh, those implications weren't so dire for those systems. And um, and again, I don't mean to just harp on this one, but nimble policy at the federal level isn't exactly the word usually comes to mind, maybe shock more than nimble. And so how do we build into these directionally correct initiatives the room to adjust quickly. You you described the implementation side of of closing the gap on COVID vaccines, but that, as I understood, it was really more implementation than than policy writ large. How how do you how, how do we do this? How do we do? How do we keep nimble? Well, this goes back to your first question, Ellen, which is marrying these worlds of public sector and private sector, because I feel like if you live in one world. Um, you don't understand, you might even resent, and you certainly don't invest in trying to understand the other world, unless you're trying to influence it, unless you're, you know, government relations, et cetera. But generally speaking, people in healthcare have this sort of, let's let government keep out of our way so we can get the job done. And then you've got a bunch of policymakers who say, I want to get a bunch of things done. But of course, there's only a few thousand of us, relatively speaking, to the millions of people that are working in healthcare. And I don't talk to them very much, and I don't listen to them very much. And that gap is the gap that has to close so that people could speak the same language. You know, I often tell people in the private sector, you are a government contractor, whether you want to admit it or not. If you only care for people who are employed and commercially insured, they're living off a $250 billion tax subsidy. If you want to talk about um, almost anything that you're doing, the government is making the rules. They're your partner. They have policy goals. If you don't seek to understand how to meet those needs of these of the, the policymakers, uh, you are, you know, in effect, missing out on the opportunity to really solve these problems and be part of these solutions. And to their surprise, they think that the think of policymakers as not being open to those kinds of conversations. And there are certain kinds of conversations that you really aren't open to as a policymaker. You know, if someone wants to come in and tell me why their mousetrap and their company is the way to go and what's in their best interest. You never really had a lot of time for that. But if somebody came in and said, look, we, we've, we've been working in this community or with these types of patients for a long, long time. Here's what we've learned. Here's, how, here's what we could do together. Here's some suggestions for you. Those are often game-changing meetings because you're just hungry for that kind of data and that kind of information. So there's a couple of good things, though, Alan, that's happened over the course of your and my career. You know, if you go back to the early 2000s, um, 
if you wanted something to change from a policy standpoint, more likely than not, it was going to have to go to Congress. Today, you've got Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. You've got Medicaid Managed Care. You've got uh, Medicare Advantage for all its imperfections. But in effect, what, what those three simple, think of them as three vectors, do is they have allowed, they basically, did what Congress has said, we will create an opportunity for the government, without coming back to us, to rapidly innovate within some guardrails uh, and iterate on how to improve things for you so that you as a private sector person don't say, great, it requires an act of Congress to change things. But at least there's an entity or a set of entities at the federal level, at the state level, that if they're doing their job well, are looking at the data, understanding what the evidence is telling them, and they should be making rapid improvements. And culturally, it has to be okay to say, you know what, we rolled out this program, this ACO, this medical home, and so much of it didn't work, but we're changing it, and now it's getting better. And I always remind people, like the iPhone 1, in today's standards, is a pretty crappy phone. But you'd never have the iPhone 2 or 3 or 4 or 5 or 13 without the versions that came before it, which allowed us to understand what worked and what didn't work. So we have to tolerate in the innovation progress um, continued effort and continued improvement and some amount of failure. And we have to participate in that failure if we want to get things better. But there has to be a commitment to taking those things that aren't working and making them better. Well, I'm really glad you brought us full circle to where we started because you are right. The level of distrust between sectors, the amount of finger pointing across uh, from one place to another, I don't know if it's higher in healthcare than anywhere else, but there's sure a lot of it. And your breadth of experience is part of what makes it possible for you to listen to people and understand the language of people from a lot of different perspectives who who otherwise just couldn't make any sense of this and, and wouldn't even know why they needed to know. So as we wrap up our conversation, uh, it's hard to look at your history and not imagine that there are more ideas bubbling around in your head of where to go. I'm sure there are ideas and thoughts out of Town Hall Ventures, but more broadly than that, what's the innovation trajectory for Andy Slavitt? I don't think I'm the point. I mean, I think I've been incredibly fortunate and to be in a position where I can work on trying to to contribute and do some good. And I'll tell you where a couple of areas I'm focused in. One is, I think once a decade or so, we take a shot at big system change at the federal level. and. Uh, it probably can't be much more often than once a decade. Uh, but over the course of time, you know, we've seen Medicare in 1960s. We've seen the Children's Health Insurance Program. We've seen the Affordable Care Act. Um, we've seen a number of other things. And so we ought to be, number one, we ought to be preparing ourselves so that our next shot is a good shot. That we get closer to the place where everybody in the country can wake up and feel like, I don't have to worry about whether I can afford the care if someone in my family, God forbid, gets sick. And maybe, just maybe, I have a shot at having a longitudinal relationship with a medical team, uh, which would be just 
to me, it's Nirvana. I get goosebumps even saying those words. I'm such a geek. Um, so I think we need to prepare for that. Number two, I think those of us that are my vintage ought to be spending a lot of time with people in their 20s and 30s that are coming up in healthcare now. Uh, and that's a particular passion. So finding people, whether they're entrepreneurs or whether they're in the public sector or the social sector, doesn't matter whether they're you know, an emerging new Medicaid director, whether they're um, someone who's taking on um, you know, domestic violence in their community and trauma, or someone who's got an entrepreneurial idea on how to fix things in their community. I ought to be spending all kinds of time with those folks. Um, and um, to the extent that I can be helpful in knocking down barriers and saying, hey, look, I'll be just be blunt. Alan. I have access to access to, I have access to more people than most people do. I could pick up the phone and call you know, a governor, a U.S. senator, the White House, a CEO of hospital system insurance company, and more often than not, they'll be more likely to take my call than they would be from the average person that called. So I got to decide what I want to use that privilege for. Uh, so using this on behalf of Toyin Ajayi, who started the program at City Block Health, which is focused on dual eligible people with many of whom have severe, severe social and mental issues um, is a joy, right? And, you know, and so seeing someone like her who's in her thirties and so promising and saying, if I could do a little bit to help her get to even a higher potential, it, it will do a lot of good. And then I think third is the luxury of being available when needed to help, um, whether that's President Biden calling and saying, hey, we can't get these vaccines out to the country very well, whether that's um, a governor um, who's got a problem, whether it's, you know, focusing on the future of pandemic preparedness, which is um, I'm doing now at the White House. Whatever those things are, you know, I've spent a career where I just haven't had that kind of capacity where if, you called me and said, hey, Andy, I need your help with something. You're very unlikely that I could say yes. And I still can't say yes to everything that, that is interesting that I want to do. But increasingly, um, you know, the, I find having that capacity to be a luxury that I pay. It's a sort of my payment to myself um, to get involved in things that in a way that I can with a with a mid, with a just even a little bit of time and effort, I can help make a big difference um, by by my involvement. And you know, we have a team of people that help me select what those things are. Um, but I try to be agnostic to is it is it innovation? Is it policy? Is it to me? Is what problem is it trying to solve? And what are all the tools we can bring to solve it? And that's a lot of fun, and it's a luxury. It's a luxury that I wouldn't have. Um, if I were sitting in any one particular chair. So I, so I enjoy that. And so I, I, it's another way of saying I resist the urge to go be defined as the CEO of X or the head of Y or what have you. Well, and what I particularly like about your answer is that it's not a plan. It's a set of values to define 
the choices that are in front of you that you don't even know exist yet. And that's a great way to live. Uh, Andy, it's been such a pleasure having this time with you, learning from you, getting a more insight into how you approach some of the many complicated topics you've taken on. And I'm sure there will be more. Thanks so much for being my guest on Health Odyssey. Thanks, Alan. I really appreciate, appreciate it. Uh, enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.